I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And the world of comics is as vast as it is diverse. From colorful, fanciful stories geared toward children to gritty, realistic artwork crafted for a more mature crowd, if it can be drawn, there's an audience for it. But what motivates an artist to pursue a particular style or genre? Or, to put it another way, what draws them to it? Our guest this week shares how he became passionate about cartooning and why he creates comics about communities that are often overlooked and underserved. Barry Deutsch draws political cartoons. With Becky Hawkins, he co-creates the webcomic Super Butch, about a 1940s lesbian superhero protecting gay bars from corrupt cops. He also created the award-winning Hereville graphic novel series about, quote, yet another 11-year-old troll-fighting Orthodox Jewish girl, end quote, and is part of the team adapting the Wings of Fire prose novels into comics. Barry lives in a bright blue house with bright pink trim in Portland, Oregon, and is probably listening to the cast album of a musical right now. Barry, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, you are very welcome. Now, I don't want to start off too adversarial, but I do want to take issue with two sentences of your introduction, the last and the first. Now, first, unless you have the volume on very, very low, I doubt you're listening to a musical soundtrack at this moment. Am I right? Okay, you've got me. But, you know, probably as soon as we're done, I'll go and turn it on. (laughs) Nailed him. And second, (laughs) (laughs) while many of your cartoons do have, I guess, what anyone could say, an overtly political bent, like the ones you draw for your comic series Ampersand, published on your site LeftyCartoons.com and in the magazine Dollars and Cents, which is spelled S-E-N-S-E for our listeners. My nitpick is that the scope of your artistic work is quite large, and the political cartoons make up only one piece of a much larger tapestry, which I'm looking forward to exploring in part with you today. So to start us off, Barry, you were born in New York. Which part of New York City did you grow up? Because a couple of my relatives, including my mom, grew up in New York as well. I was born in Queens, and my early childhood was mostly spent in Flushing, Queens. And we bounced around a bit. We actually lived in Canada for a little while, Saskatchewan. There was so much snow. And then most of my formative years were actually spent in Connecticut. My parents decided that they wanted to raise me and my sister outside of the city, so they moved to commuting distance away. Oh, okay. Yeah, actually, my mom grew up or spent part of her childhood in Queens as well right next to Flushing, actually. She, her mother, and her sister were the only three Armenians in what was otherwise an entirely Jewish apartment complex. What part of your childhood was spent in New York versus Canada versus Connecticut? Like, what years of your life? Okay, from until the fifth grade or so, I, by the way, have the world's worst memory for my early life. Generally, when I'm asked questions like this, if I weren't being recorded, I would say, hold on, let me email my sister and ask her. Well, here's a little secret about podcasting, Barry, is that you can just estimate it and no one listening will know. You don't have fact checkers on this? <laughs> no, just my dog, Charlie, sitting next to me, and he's pretty easy on the facts. Okay. Until the fifth grade, I lived mostly in Syosset, actually. Okay. And also Flushing. But, you know, areas of New York City. One year of that was my father's experiment with being an audiologist employed by the Canadian government. And that's the year we lived in Saskatchewan. That would have been, I'm guessing, around my third grade year. And it was kind of a neat thing. He had to get a pilot's license for that job. Oh, wow. Because in Saskatchewan, people are so scattered 
that the audiologist has to go hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to see his patients. And so he would fly all over Saskatchewan to be people's audiologist. And I remember once he took me and my family up in the little tiny plane he flew, and it was absolutely terrifying. That thing just like rattled so much, I was convinced we were about to die. (laughs) And then around sixth grade, we moved to Connecticut. I'll be very vulnerable now and admit it was Westport. And I stayed in Connecticut until I graduated from high school. And what specifically, because I'm not too familiar with Connecticut, is there something significant about Westport? Well, there's a Broadway play from years ago called Death Trap, which is, you know, about a very sophisticated murder novelist who's living somewhere in New York. And at one point to describe whether something is, you know, lame or not worthwhile or just embarrassingly suburban, he says, put it on the train and see if it gets off at Westport. (laughs) Okay. I relate to that. I grew up in a suburb outside of San Francisco which was a great place to grow up and a great place to raise a family, but not a very fun place to be a young person. So I totally understand. One of the reasons I wanted to learn more about your upbringing is I want to see how, if at all, your upbringing affected your artistic endeavors. So there are a couple small but significant memories I have of my father at a young age that looking back, I think had a fairly large impact on the path that I decided to walk down. One, which I shared in part on a 10-minute episode announcing the name change of the show, is of he and I sitting on the floor of my parents' first townhome. I was about three or so, and he had his typewriter. And we sat on the floor, and I dictated stories of superheroes that he then wrote out on his typewriter, and then he read them back to me. And the other story... And that's why you became a comic book creator. Exactly. (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing is, the other story is how excited I would get at age five, six, and seven for him to arrive home from work because there was always a chance, there's always a pretty good chance that he'd be bringing home new comic books with him. He collected comics when he was a kid. Nice. I know, yeah. He collected comics as a kid, and I I know that he's listening right now, and I know he's okay with me sharing this story, but... He had, at one point, the first appearance of Spider-Man and the first 10 comics of the Amazing Spider-Man comic book series before, I think, his mom eventually threw them away while cleaning his room. But um, <laughs> That is the most classic <laughs> story. <laughs> <laughs> but him bringing home those comics and how excited I was to read them was also a very significant memory for me. But one obviously had a much larger impact on the course of my life because I ended up pursuing writing, not graphic storytelling. So... For you, Barry, what inspired you to pursue graphic storytelling as a career? And are there any events in your life you can point to as significant in contributing to that decision? Well, when I was a kid, I loved animals and I enjoyed science. So I was positive for so many years I was going to be a vet. And then I guess in the eighth grade, I was a year ahead. So I took ninth grade science, which is biology, and we dissected frogs. And I'm not sure if you remember what the inside of a frog looks like, but I'll just tell you right now, spoiler alert, it is gross. And that pretty much put a kibosh on the whole be a vet thing. And I'd also always liked comics or been somewhat obsessed with them, but as a reader, not a creator. My parents had on their den wall over a sofa, a framed Sunday pogo page. And for folks listening to this podcast who don't know, Pogo was is one of the all-time great American comic strips and maybe the best-drawn American comic strip ever. 
It ended, I believe, in the early 70s. So it'll be before most people's times. But this Sunday page, which was huge, it was probably like two and a half feet wide by two feet high. I would just stand on the back of the sofa and read and reread and reread this pogo page. And it was fascinating to me. It was fascinating. The story and the art were great, but also underneath the black, lush brushstrokes of the page, if you looked, you could see the light blue pencil lines that while Kelly, the cartoonist, had done, you know, as a guide for his ink before he did the final drawing. And you could see places where he'd use whiteout or in one case where he or his assistant had messed up lettering and taped a new piece of paper over the original lettering. And it was the first time I began to really realize that comics were drawn by people. They didn't just, you know, appear that way. So once being the vet was out, you know, I sort of naturally began to think about, well, what else is it that I enjoy doing? Or really, I just did it. Me and my high school best friend, Brian Davis, used to, you know, make comics together and he would write, I would draw. And, you know, by the time I'd reached the end of high school, I knew I was going to be a cartoonist. That part of the story where you talked about that realization you had when you realized that comics were drawn, they didn't just appear. It seems like a silly thing, I imagine, to some listeners, but I had that exact same experience with movie making. And when I first started going to film school, I connected with so many of my fellow students because they recalled very similar stories where they had that transformation in their minds, where they went from realizing or understanding as kids that, oh, movies are just something that appear to having that realization that they are actually made by individual human beings coming together to make something. And like, it can be a very significant moment in a person's life when they realize that, oh, wow, this thing that I love is actually something that I can do too. Definitely. And it's great when you're young enough, when you hit that point, that you don't yet have any standards because your own work looks so wonderful to you then. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, gosh, that's very true. You know, there's a book called Making Movies by Sidney Lumet. And one of the very first things that he says, I think in the first chapter of the book, is that to be a filmmaker, you have to have a kind of constant willful ignorance. You have to believe in yourself to such an extent that you ignore a lot of the things that might prevent you from starting. Like you have to have an ignorance of the things you do not yet know. Right. Because if you understood all the things you didn't know, you might never start. (laughs) Yeah. There's a huge NPR podcast, Ira something. This American Life? Yes, This American Life. I heard an interview with the host, Ira something, and Mr. Something was saying that the advice he gives young people who want to do what he does is to be prepared for that period between where you first develop good taste yes, and where your skills grow, where you need to be patient and be willing to get through that point when you know what you're producing really isn't up to the standards that you yourself hold yet. And you just need to keep working and get to the point where you can do work that you think is good. So there's like two stages. There's the everything I'm doing is wonderful. And then there's the, oh my God, everything I'm doing is so terrible, I should quit. And then hopefully the third stage where you're both your own biggest critic and your own biggest fan. Yes. And I just did a quick Google and Ira something is Ira Glass for anyone wondering. Okay. So to move on to the next stage of your childhood, you attended Oberlin College and then the School of Visual Arts in New York before ultimately graduating from Portland State University. And I'd love to linger for a moment on New York's SVA, where you studied under Will Eisner, who's a legendary cartoonist, also considered, quote, the godfather 
of the graphic novel. Now, just a few other facts about Eisner for those unfamiliar with him. Michael Chabon's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, is in good part based on Eisner's life. And one of the comic industry's most prestigious awards, recognized to many as the Oscars of the American comic book business, is named the Eisner Awards. Wizard Magazine named Eisner the most influential comic artist of all time. And that one has a sentimental significance to me because I was an obsessive subscriber to Wizard Magazine as a kid. So to put it lightly, you studying under Eisner at SVA would have been like for me studying under Steven Spielberg at film school. So what were some of your more significant experiences studying under such a titan of the craft? And how did he come to influence your work both in and outside of the classroom? Well, unfortunately, by the time I attended SVA, I think that Iser had lost some of his energy for teaching. So to a great extent, his classes when I were there were not very structured and consisted of him sitting around and you know, kind of talking about creating comics, but more in a bullshitting way than in an organized curriculum sort of way. But if you did the work and you brought it in, he would sit down with you and he would go over your pages and he would tell you what was wrong. (laughs) And it was, at the time, I didn't fully appreciate what an amazing privilege that was. But some of the lessons he imparted, even if I didn't get it at the time, I eventually got And that was very useful. Before I attended SVA, when I was still in high school, me and my friend Brian Davis drove many miles to see Eisner speak at a museum of cartoon arts that existed in Connecticut at the time. And I was in my I know everything phase. And I, at the Q&A afterward, I raised my hand and I said, well, this storytelling choice you made in the graphic novel Life Choice just seemed bizarre to me, like it just stopped the story in place. And I was wondering why you did that. His answer to me put me in my place, let's say. And the whole room laughed. And, you know, that's fine. It happens. And I didn't think about that. But years later, when I was at SVA, he was kind of just sitting around and chatting with me and the other students And one of the other students asked the question, so I heard that at a museum appearance, some kid was being obnoxious and you just put him down. And Iser laughed it off and said, well, yeah, I don't think it was that bad. And I'm not even sure what happened with that. And I said, yeah, I I remember I was that kid. (laughs) And everyone laughed and Iser said, no, seriously. I said, no, seriously, I was that kid. And After the class, Iser apologized to me and I told him no need because I was obnoxious and it was funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's nice that the two of you got to resolve that. That's so funny. So that is my single best Eisner anecdote. (laughs) That's wonderful. Now, Eisner's 1978 A Contract with God, which is a collection of short stories centered around poor Jewish characters who live in a New York City tenement, helped to popularize the term graphic novel in the popular discourse, in addition to being, I think, perhaps the first graphic novel that featured almost exclusively Jewish characters living in a largely culturally Jewish environment. He produced two sequels focusing on that same tenement. And we'll get to Hearville, which is your trilogy of graphic novels in a moment. But what impact, if any, did Eisner's graphic novel work have on you as an aspiring and working cartoonist? Consciously, the thing that I took the most from Eisner as a cartoonist was trying to absorb his visual storytelling approach and also his approach to figure drawing. Eisner's figure drawings are 
wonderfully loose, but also anatomically accurate. You could definitely feel looking at his drawings that there's a solid skeleton underneath the skin of his characters. It doesn't look like they're made of noodles, but at the same time, they look loose. They look lively. They always look like they're moving through space, even if what they're doing is just slumping and standing still. And he also had, to me, a fascinating brushstroke, which is actually pretty similar to Walt Kelly's brushstroke, the cartoonist of Pogo. And I've never been able to do it, but I still admire it. And to this day, very often I'm drawing a figure, I try and and reproduce that kind of looseness I'm talking about. You know, his figures always remind me of the dancer Donald O'Connor, who is one of the stars of the movie Singing in the Rain. Mm. He was like Gene Kelly's sidekick. And I always liked his dancing better than Gene Kelly's. You know, he could do the exact same steps, but somehow seem more loose and lively doing them. So that's a lot of what I take from Eisner, is trying to look at his visual storytelling the way he lays out a page, and learn from it. And Eisner was so much better at that than almost any cartoonist ever, that there's never going to stop being things to learn from him that way. I didn't, at the time, think very much of the way he did Judaism, other than finding it interesting because it wasn't a superhero, because he was doing a different sort of thing. And that was so rare when he did a contract with God. And it was largely because he was, you know, officially retired at that point and could do whatever he wanted. And he could, you know, be a lot more ambitious about what he was trying to do. And it is really fascinating in that in many ways, the way he presented Judaism in his last few decades, graphic novels is exactly what I was trying to do with Hereville later, and I'm sure that was influential, in that he didn't attempt to do lessons. He wasn't like trying to teach people about Judaism with his work. But nor was he doing the thing that you see with characters like Marvel's The Thing and Kitty Pride, where the character is Jewish, but you'd have to read the comic for years for it to come up because it's irrelevant. And it wasn't about Judaism as a religion. It was about Judaism as a culture and about, okay, these people have their stories, which may or may not, usually not, have anything to do with Judaism, but every part of their life is set in a Jewish culture. And just by reading this comic, you are immersed in a Jewish culture. And that, I think, is the best approach, honestly. And it's what I was trying to emulate with my own work in Hereville. Yes, and we'll get to Hearville in just one second. But before we leave this general topic, I would love to just explore the art of cartooning and of drawing comic strips with you just a little bit. Because that idea of having like a loose limb body language that you were talking about, what are some things kind of in general that you had to learn as you were kind of building up your artistic skill in this area that maybe the average listener, right, who might read comics either in passing or even someone who reads comics regularly, but doesn't really understand the artistic endeavor of creating them, of creating the sense of movement, of creating a sense of vitality in what is basically just still images. What are some things that you think are underappreciated by people who love comics, but might not understand the artistic skill required to capture something like movement? Okay. Just as an aside, based on your question, it's not just still images, technically, 
comics are still images juxtaposed. And I'm stealing that from a cartoonist named Scott McCloud. Oh, yes. Yes. The, the book Understanding Comics. The seminal Understanding Comics. Yes. So good. So good. Anecdote about that? When I was in Massachusetts uh, doing a comic strip for the Daily Collegian at UMass, so I was still quite young, Scott McCloud, the author of Understanding Comics, he and his wife Ivy went on a trip, and I stayed in their house for a couple of weeks to take care of their dogs. And as he was leaving, Scott said, oh, I've got this script to my new comic on my drafting table. Feel free to read it. And Scott's scripts, I should explain, are fully drawn comics. They're very loose drawings. They're not the tight ink drawings you, that get published, but they are very, they, you could read them like a comic. They're that complete. So that was understanding comics. And so I read it in one very late night and my mind was completely blown. It was so astounding. And then I realized I had to go back to drawing by what then would seem to be at that moment, my stupid, petty little gag comic strip. <laughs> and that just seemed very difficult to me at the time. I got understanding comics, I think, in my first or second year at film school, mm-hmm. not because it was directly related, but reading that book, and I'll, I'll put it in the show notes, and I highly recommend anyone who's interested in even a little bit of understanding the art to buy it, because it is very easily accessible, even if you're not familiar with the field at all. And it's such an entertaining read. Absolutely. One thing I would say is that the length of time it takes to draw a comic book is underappreciated. For me to write and draw a graphic novel, for me, takes about two years. And that's if it goes pretty well. And that's like about 140 pages in my case. So it's a slow process. And is that just the drawing or does that include the ideation that takes place before you put pen to paper, so to speak? Writing and drawing. Gotcha. I would say that one of the things that's difficult to understand until you actually begin to sit down and do it, or until you make a study of it in some way, like reading and understanding comics, is the extent to which the way you're arranging panels is partly about manipulating the reader's experience of time. Because you're trying to create these still pictures that when readers look at them in a certain order, the readers will be filling in the experience of movement and change in their mind. And movement and change is another way of describing time. The way we recognize time passing is because things do move and change. And so all sorts of things in comics influence the reader's experience of time. If you make a panel very wide and make the figures very small inside that panel, to the readers, that'll say, whether they're aware of it consciously or not, that we're seeing a pretty broad span of time, that this isn't just a fleeting half, you know, quarter second. This is sort of the entire scene for a while, which is why those panels are so often used on what I would describe as time is passing panels between scenes. And similarly, a series of tight, panels packed together, bang, 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 will communicate to the reader that right now we're seeing things pass really quickly, that things are happening fast. And those are, you know, two extremes, but there's a lot of subtle things that cartoonists have to do playing with time, which is one of the most interesting things about comics. Another thing is sort of 
The difference between whether you're thinking of the panels as a unit of storytelling or the page as a unit of storytelling. And it matters a lot because if you think of the panels as a unit of storytelling, then that means that you kind of don't need to worry so much about where the page turns take place. And it's trying to create a very transparent world for the readers, where they're just reading the panels, enjoying the story, and maybe not even noticing the layout or art consciously at all. In contrast, if you're thinking of the page as a unit, and this is certainly something Eisner did with most of his comics, then you're doing things with the layout props, which are inviting the reader to look at how the page is laid out as a whole. You might be having a large figure overlapping a whole bunch of panels, and the panels are in a relationship with that figure. The famous Donald Duck artist, Carl Barks, did this a lot. And there, you know, you're not trying to be transparent and have the readers not even notice the panels. You're trying to get the readers to slow down a moment and say, hey, look at this layout, which isn't just the panels, and take a look at how all of this relates together and is held as a unit. And for me as a cartoonist, that's one of the most fascinating things there is. I imagine you're familiar with comicsology. I mean, a little. I don't actually have it myself, but I know what it is. Yeah. And they have that horrible panel-by-panel view. That's what I was going to mention, because as I was prepping for our talk, I came across it, and I downloaded it, and I was looking at it on my iPad, and it has what's known as guided view, where instead of you seeing the entire page at once, it goes panel-by-panel. And it's interesting from a legibility perspective, but I couldn't help but feeling this might be what comic artists feel like when a, a filmmaker sees like before the age of widescreen televisions and they saw their movie crunched down into a four by three to what is known in filmmaking as pan and scan, where the image would be cropped and moved around to fit on a square screen. I have to imagine that comic artists would feel the same way with something like this. It depends on the artist. Like I said, there are two approaches. I don't know, but I imagine that Jaime Hernandez first to is in my opinion, the best living cartoonist right now. I imagine that he might not care a lot because his work is really designed to be read panel by panel. He doesn't really do any page-based layouts. And in fact, sometimes when he's edited his own work, he's like cut out panels and move them to different pages. So he apparently is fine with that. And as I said, unbelievably wonderful cartoonist. Chester Brown is another wonderful, wonderful cartoonist, total right-wing libertarian, by the way, who really works with the panel as a unit. But I think that the panel view that that app, and I think some other apps do, can make some comics less readable Mm. and really destroy them, or at least harm the reading experience a lot. And certainly, that would be the case with many of Will Eisler's comics. I think it might be the case with many of Scott McCloud's comics. Yes. It's so interesting how you can have so many different artistic approaches to the same medium. I have never looked at what they've done to Hearville, but I'm sure I'm sure I would not enjoy it. <laughs> I'm surprised they don't ask for some kind of consent there. But something you mentioned about the passing of time between panels reminded me of a very influential book that I read while in film school called In the Blink of an Eye, which was written by editor Walter Murch, who edited Apocalypse Now, mm-hmm. among other classic films. And that book was so mind-blowing for me because he described the process of editing as implying action between the two different frames that you're editing between and how editing from one image to another 
can create basically a third space between the two images that can imply action, time passing, can imply emotion, and all these different things that really made me appreciate editing as an art form. And I think based on what you're saying, the art of comics and paneling and layout serves the same function. It absolutely does. And then the drawing elements, the what I was talking about with body language, with limbs and all that, is what I would consider the acting function. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so this feels like a good place to start transitioning to Hearville, which uses layout in ways that I think serve to effectively evoke emotion, memory, comedy, a feeling of breathless action, like when Mirka's being chased by a very perturbed pig, and much more. And it's the aforementioned epic tale of Mirka, the 11-year-old troll-fighting Jewish girl, which was partially inspired, if I recall correctly, by a book you read about the home lives of Hasidic Jewish families. And before we get to kind of the main thrust of the question, may I ask what the name of that book is? It's called Holy Days, The World of a Hasidic Family by Liz Harris. Ah, thank you. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. To get to our question, you've previously mentioned the research you needed to do in order to accurately bring Mirka's world to life. It was an interview I saw from a few years ago. And you're of Jewish background yourself, but I long ago came to understand that there are a thousand different ways to wear that label of, of what it means to be Jewish. So what was your own cultural and religious upbringing like? And what did you need to do to ensure you were authentically representing Mirka's family and friends? My parents raised me and my sister what I would call semi-observant reform. And what I mean by that is that I didn't wear a skull cap growing up, but neither did we have Christmas trees in the house. So both my sister and I were bar batzvitzvah, and you know we went to Hebrew school every week, but we didn't typically go to services on Shabbos morning. So I was always aware that ours was it was a Jewish household, but you know we had ham in the fridge. Curiously, my father became much more religious after he retired. And so my parents began keeping kosher. My father passed away years ago, but my mom still does keep kosher. My mom eventually became president of her synagogue. So it became much more central to their lives by the time Hereville came out. And my father, when I was joking about the way we were raised and talking about the ham, he was like, no, no, we never had ham. We always had ham. So I was never religious, though. I mean, even as a kid going to Hebrew school, I found the stories that we learned and the discussions of Jewish ethics interesting. So I liked it from kind of an academic perspective, and I always felt connected to Judaism. But I basically never believed in God, and I still don't. So for me, it's always been more cultural than religious. Gotcha. And thank you for sharing that. I really liked that the narrative of Mirka was interspersed with details about the life and culture of Orthodox Jewish kids and their families. Like there's a brief three panel detour in the first book that shows how different girls at school all express their distinct personalities with minor but significant modifications. To the school uniform. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And I found the juxtaposition of Orthodox Jewish family traditions with fantasy elements really engaging. Speaking as someone who grew up Christian and is unfamiliar with many of the cultural aspects of 
of what it means to be Jewish and, and how many different ways that you can be Jewish. So I want to make sure that I'm wording this particular question accurately. So I'm going to start with a relevant anecdote. When Mexican-American director Robert Rodriguez pitched Spy Kids to studios, and I promise this is relevant, <laughs> he said that a question he received was, quote, why are you making them Latin? Why don't you just make them American? And Rodriguez would reply, they are American. They're based on my family, end quote. So this question isn't about why the town of Hereville is Jewish. I don't think that needs much explaining but you took the time and care within the pages of the story to draw attention to and explain various Jewish traditions and habits of daily life, which in my view is a distinct additional choice. So what were your motivations behind this decision and why was it important for you to include these details? Well, this may be an unsatisfying answer, but because they're the sort of things I would find really fascinating as a reader. I mean, a lot of my inspiration for Hereville were comics like Love and Rockets by the Hernandez brothers, which draws heavily on their own Latin backgrounds, and Usagi Yojimbo by Stan Sakai, which is very influenced by Sakai's Japanese ancestry. And there was an issue of Usagi Yojimbo, which is this big sword samurai adventure. It's, a, it's an action comic. But there's an issue where like half the issue is simply a tea ceremony shown in significant detail. And there's another one where he just spends pages and pages showing the readers how a kite maker working in a traditional fashion would make a kite. And I always love those. No one does a sword fight better than Stan Sakai, but my favorite things were always those little cultural digressions. And so to an extent, it was about thinking about, well, what is it I really enjoy as a reader? Because when I started Hereville, I was not thinking I'm going to do a kid's book. I was thinking I was trying to create a book that didn't already exist, but that I would love if it did exist. Mm. So I'm sorry to say I don't remember which book I read, which originally went over the different ways that Hasidic girls dress within their very strict school uniform requirements to express their personalities and to express what kind of girl they are. Mm. But when I read that, I was just fascinated by it. And I knew I wanted to include that in Hereville. The major reason was because I think it's interesting. That is one of my favorite pages from the first Hereville book that you just described. But also, I think it adds to letting people know about Mirka's life. I think it makes the town that she lives in, which is fictional, feel more realistic and detailed when we can see details of her life and that these things aren't just arbitrary. Yeah. And those details are, are really important. And I have to imagine that you were anticipating that a lot of folks who weren't familiar with Hasidic Jewish life or, or maybe weren't even Jewish themselves would be reading Hereville because whether it's translating certain phrases to English so that people understand what some of the characters are saying and including those little details, it seems like it's in many ways not necessarily geared exclusively to a non-Jewish audience, but it's keeping them in mind as a way to share the culture with people who might not be familiar with it. I didn't think about it that way at all. Oh. But I mean, I sort of did in that, as I said, when I initially was created Hereville, I was thinking of myself as the audience. Mm. And I was not raised Hasidic or even modern Orthodox. I was raised Reform. 
an extremely secular household. Mm. And so I don't speak Yiddish. You know, I didn't have any of those experiences that Mirka has, or not many of them. You know, I didn't go to an all Jewish school with school uniforms or an all Jewish school at all. I did go to Jewish summer camp, <laughs> but it was to answer an earlier question of yours. So part of the trouble I had with Hereville was trying to keep things accurate. And I did do a lot of research, but research, well, it will give you things to put in. Mm. It won't necessarily tell you the things that you're putting in thoughtlessly that are wrong. Right. And after the first book came out, an Orthodox rabbi in California volunteered to read the subsequent books before they came out and make sure I didn't screw anything up. And that was very helpful. He definitely caught some things. I had an uncle who's very Orthodox and spoke Yiddish well. And so he was an important resource. My mom introduced me to a professor who one of the things she studies is Yiddish, and she was an important resource as well. So as the project went on and more people became aware of what I was doing, it became easier to find the help I needed. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's kind of like the difference between learning Spanish in the classroom and actually speaking it, like let's say on the streets of Mexico, there's a difference between learning it formally and then also seeing how people integrate it into their lives. Yeah. And a lot of things I was most interested in are things that were initially very hard to research. If you want to find out how a Passover Seder works, that is easy. There's a lot of resources that will tell you what an Orthodox Seder looks like, the exact order of events, and so forth. If you want to find out what it is that Hasidic girls wear when they're playing basketball in the schoolyard, that is much harder to find. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. That's a much more specific detail that might not be contained within the pages of a standard book. So one other fascinating topic that I'd love to explore with you in regards to Hereville is your choice to make it from a female perspective. I wrote two short films from a female POV, partially as a creative challenge to myself and mostly because I was getting a bit bored writing dudes. So what personally led you to imagine Mirka as your lead instead of, say, her younger brother, Zindel? I never considered having the boy be the lead. You haven't had the chance to read the things that were never published prior to Hereville, but... I think they all have female leads. Even that newspaper strip at University of Massachusetts, which is called Cast of Thousands, that initially began with the male lead. But then he met a girl who wanted to be his girlfriend, and very quickly she became the lead of the strip. So I think I've always been drawn to female main characters. And I don't know that there's a reason for it, when I was a kid, I was never a kid who only had male friends. And I'm sorry, I'm being a little incoherent, but that's because I honestly don't know why I'm drawn this way. It is certainly not because I'm drawing characters that I'm romantically attracted to, because obviously I'm not, and my comics tend to be completely sexless, but <laughs> it's... Just as what I've always been drawn to. Yeah. Maybe it's partly because when I was a kid, I was a wimp. I was picked on. Mm. And in the case of Hereville, for instance, 
in order for the story to work, the main character had to be very physically inclined and very combative and honestly a little bit of a bully. <laughs> I think it would have been very hard for me to, to do a sympathetic male character mm. who resembled the people who picked on me when I was a kid in school. Yeah. So maybe that's why. But honestly, that was a decision made without any thought. And actually, it initially, Hereville initially appeared on a website that only had comics with female main characters. Mm. But that website doesn't exist anymore. I and I'm going to mispronounce this, Reina Teljamir, who is pretty much the best-selling graphic novelist in the world right now, both started our comics at that same site at the same time. She's been a tiny bit more successful than me. <laughs> she was working on a webcomic called Smile, which eventually was published by Scholastic and was a huge, huge hit, and deservedly so. It's a really enjoyable – it's not an autobiography. It's fictionalized, but it's based on Raina's own life about having her two front teeth accidentally knocked out when she was a child and just how it changed her life going forward when she was a kid. On a panel for the 2012 Vancouver Comics Arts Festival, you said, quote, there's so many really rich female characters, and maybe that's what we should be saying instead of strong is rich, end quote. And I wish I had been in the audience to offer some sort of loud and vocal approval. While I understand the impetus behind the desire to say strong, because for so long, female characters in art and entertainment have been stereotypically characterized as weak and in need of saving. But before I, I get ahead of myself and answer my own question here, <laughs> why do you think this is an important distinction to make? Why is rich better than strong? It's odd because, you know, one of the things that strong can mean when you say a strong character is not someone who's physically strong, but someone who's a strong character as in written with a lot of depth and well-written. But over time, when he, people hear a strong female character, they begin to think of characters like Buffy and Xena. You know, they're defining strong as physically strong. So I think that doing rich female character is maybe a more narrow focus on what we should be concerned about, because there's actually nothing wrong with having a main character who is physically weak. Even in an adventure story, there's nothing wrong with having a character who can't fight well, or, you know, who even is captured. The question is, no matter what experiences the character is going through, are you able to make it rich enough to provide an enjoyable reading experience and to avoid sexist tropes? So I think it's just, it's a similar idea, but it's focusing more on what I think matters. Yes, I completely agree. I think that there is, among some folks, a well-intentioned, but I think misguided belief that women must be judged against whatever the stereotypical male characteristics are of needing to be physically strong or capable of punching their way out of any situation, which to me as a man is also, in my opinion, very limiting because I, I share a similar history with you. I was bullied a lot as a kid for things beyond my control. And that really had a deep impact on who I became as a person. So I, I feel like it's very limiting to men and women both, you know? I think a lot of the reason that writers, creators are drawn to physically strong characters, especially in adventure genres where the characters 
really do need to fight a lot or escape or run or whatever is because that's how characters in those genres have agency. A character in Star Wars who can't fight is a character who's going to be taken hostage and tied up and can't do anything. And it is very possible to write a good story about a character who has no agency, but it's hard. It's not a 101 level class. It's like graduate student level. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of us, and I really include myself in this, would find it very difficult to write an enjoyable narrative with a central character who doesn't have agency. So one of the reasons that rebels who ignore the rules and strong characters who can't be, you know, physically overcome are so popular as protagonists is simply because that's how characters maintain agency. So for me, that's a lot of the appeal. You know, the reason that Mirka so ignores rules is because it gives her agency and it makes her more able to be the thing that is driving the stories. At the same time, I'm really resistant to the idea that the way the main character should win is by beating people up. So although I have these aspects to Mirka's character, in all three Hirva books, the way that she finally wins at the end involves an act of empathy, involves not physical violence, but her overcoming and growing mentally. And she would hate that, but that's what I'm always shooting for in the Hereville books. I think this intersection of agency and superheroes and combining a larger definition of agency with the more traditional punch your way out of any situation takes us to Super Butch, a story you co-created <laughs> with artist Becky Hawkins that follows the life of investigative reporter Lillian Styx Lewis, a light-skinned black woman passing as white at work and living her authentic life in the underground gay bar scene in the 1940s that is both about life as a lesbian in that period of American history and a superhero story about the mysterious crusader Super Butch who fights the corrupt cops who were arresting gay men and women. Like Hereville, Super Butch is in part inspired by a book you read, in this instance, Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, which is an account of the working class lesbian community in Buffalo, New York from the mid-1930s to early 1960s, which drew on the oral histories collected from 45 women who lived those stories. What were some things in that book specifically that connected with you and eventually inspired you to begin the creation of Super Butch? About Super Butch, you identified Becky as the artist. And I want to mention, Becky and I co-write the story. Oh, okay. I write the words and Becky draws the pictures. And we both edit each other's work a lot. <laughs> but the plotting, the actual story is done by both of us, generally speaking, on long plane rides or car rides on our way to a comic book convention. So I don't want to undercut what Becky does. She's the artist, and she's a wonderful artist, but she's also the story is coming from Becky as well as me. Oh, that's wonderful. And I, I think speaks to the kind of gap of information that can come from simply reading a thing versus actually speaking to the person who does the thing. Because as I was prepping for our conversation, I took a look at the Super Butch website and I saw, oh, you're the writer. She's the illustrator. And I went from there. So I'm really glad that you were able to kind of expound on that and flesh it out more so people understand truly how the two of you collaborate. Yeah, such a great collaboration. I love working with Becky. Okay. This was decades ago, because I've been carrying the idea for Super Butch around with me for so long. 
when I read Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, I mean, the characters were appealing. I call them characters. Obviously, they were all real women because they were underdogs. And whether or not they thought of it this way at the time, they were fighting for justice. And how could that not be appealing? And one thing I realized when I read it for the first time, which I think would have been back in the 1980s sometime, maybe early 90s, is I remember thinking, well, this is the community that really needs a superhero. We don't really need Bruce Wayne, an incredibly wealthy white straight man to be a superhero because he's going to be protecting the banks from bank robbers. This is a community that needs a superhero. What they need protection from is the cops. So that was the initial impetus. And the particular things that worked into it, and it's hard for me to say what specifically came from Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold, and what has come from other books I've read, is a lot of details about the bar scene a lot of details about passing, not from that book, from, from other books I've read. The central distinction, central to Superbutch, between someone who is passing in the sense of becoming the white person, essentially, becoming someone who is living as white 24-7, and your closest friends, your spouse, may never know that you were white when you were born, versus someone who is nine to fiving which is a real expression in the 1940s, who are passing as white in order to get along in some aspects of society better, to get into restaurants and stores that wouldn't allow black customers to get jobs that weren't open to black people. But still, your central life, your loved ones, your family, you're still maintaining those connections and thinking of yourself as black. So these are things which obviously I would not be able to get myself. So historical research and first-person narratives are so important. And that's part of what is so fascinating about Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold. Other than the introduction, I don't think the authors say a word in the entire book. The entire book is constructed from direct quotes, oral history, of women talking about their own lives and their own histories. And it's so wonderful and so important that this was preserved because otherwise, because mainstream history and mainstream journalism certainly wasn't interested in those women at the time. So otherwise, these histories would have been lost. And that's actually an issue for a future Super Butch book I'm researching, or I'm failing to research would be a more accurate way of putting it. In the American internment camps in Utah and California and other places during World War II. Obviously, there were lesbians who were in the internment camps because anytime you have any large group of people, there are gay people and lesbians there. That's a given. But there is, as far as you can tell, no recorded history of what it was like being a lesbian in the internment camps. So, that's an example of something where, because it was such a marginalized people at the time, marginalized both in the United States society as a whole and in the society of Japanese immigrants to the U.S., that's a history that was real, that existed, that was probably very rich, which as far as I can tell is completely lost to us. Yes. I've had a, a few conversations with other guests 
recently with Dr. Anika Prather, who teaches at Howard University about how there are so many stories in American history that go unnoticed or underappreciated simply because they, they aren't told to a mainstream audience. And another essential part of research for Superbutch has been what people called sensitivity readers. We paid a wonderful Black queer writer to read the Superbutch script in an early stage and to tell us what he thought with a particular eye to what he thought we were getting wrong, what we thought we left out that should not have been left out. And that was a huge influence on the shape that Superbutch finally took. You know, like I knew about the Black lesbian house parties from my research, but that was not originally a part of the Superbutch script. But when he read it, he said they liked the character, but he wanted to see that Black people and the Black community were actively a part of her life. And that caused a major rewrite to the script, and in my opinion, a major improvement to the script. Sometimes I see people talking about sensitivity readers as a kind of censorship, and that's ridiculous. The creative choices were all made by Becky and me, but we were able to make better creative choices because we had more information that he had generously shared with us. You somewhat anticipated the question I was just about to ask, because whether it's collaborating with an Orthodox Jewish rabbi in the second two installations of Hereville, or doing extensive research and using a sensitivity reader to more accurately reflect the lives of lesbians in the first half of the 20th century, it seems very clear to me, Barry, that it's important to you that you represent members of other communities accurately and empathetically. In episode 35 of the podcast, I discuss with filmmaker Nadia Gill, who is of Egyptian-Mexican-American heritage, the complicated and often fraught question of identity and authenticity in creative fields. Superbutch, as we've discussed here, examines the intersections of race, sexuality, and gender expression. So what are your thoughts on authenticity and representation, and who specifically gets to tell what stories? Part of the difficulty with Superbutch is that Becky and I are very inspired by what I think is the best soap opera comic strip ever done, which is called Dykes to Watch Out For. And it was written and drawn by Alison Bechdel, who later became very famous for her autobiography, Fun Home, which gave her a lot of mainstream attention. It was made into an excellent Broadway musical, by the way. Dykes to Watch Out For was attempting to create an entertaining look at a community, in this case, a lesbian community somewhere in the Northeast. And although Allison is white, she obviously couldn't do a portrait of a community in which all the characters were white. The community isn't like that. That was an inspiration for Superbutch that Becky and I agreed early on that we didn't want to only look at, you know, white Jewish characters, characters that represent our own backgrounds. We wanted to be much broader than that and look at the community. That requires research. It requires us to be willing to write outside of own voices because you literally can't do this kind of fiction where you're trying to show a diverse community and be own voices at the same time not unless you're doing something with a large staff, like a TV show. So we kind of had to decide early on, and I think we did without 
discussing it very much, that the choice was between the idea that you really need to be of someone's background to write that character and the idea of doing a comic which was partly about a portrait of a diverse community. It had to be one and the other. It couldn't be both. The way I think about writing characters who aren't from my own background is that it's more challenging. It is a harder kind of writing because you have to do the research. You have to immerse yourself in the writings of people who actually are from that community. You have to be willing to listen to the criticism from people who are from that community because otherwise what you wind up with is going to be bad and kind of embarrassing. And I think a lot of the trouble that people get into is things that are kind of not only someone writing outside of their own background, but writing badly outside of their own background. And it is something that is more likely to be written badly because it is a more difficult thing to write. In that way, it's a little similar to does your main character have agency or not? You can write good fiction without main character having the agency, but it's harder. I do think that people can write outside their own backgrounds and for some stories have to, but they also have to be willing to put the work in. And this actually applies to a bunch of my political cartoons as well. A lot of my political cartoons, if the cartoon is based on a life experience outside my own, when the political cartoon is put out, and let's say the political cartoon has is about discrimination against trans people or discrimination against disabled people, one of the things that's most important to me is seeing what the readers who are in that situation say about the comic strip. And if I can see a bunch of readers who are from the relevant background saying, oh yeah, this, then I feel like I got it right. I once had lunch with an ex-Hasidic woman who was interested in meeting me because of the Hero of the Books. When we met, the first thing she was surprised by is she said she assumed I was ex-Hasidic. And I'm very obviously not if you meet me for two seconds. Or at least if you're familiar with the community and meet me for two seconds, you would know I'm not. But that is like the best compliment about Hereville I've ever heard. Yeah, that had to have been really flattering to know that even though you weren't from that community, you were nailing the voice of that community in such a way that the person assumed you were from it. That's great. One of the things that I really enjoy when I do book signings at bookstores and or libraries is sometimes I'll be doing that and I'll see in the back of the room an obviously orthodox couple there with their 10-year-old daughter. And that thrills me so much because odds are there isn't a lot of fantasy adventure fiction available for that girl, which really reflects her own daily life. So that is enormously rewarding for me when I see that. Now, I'd be remiss to not mention your years-long work on Lefty Cartoons, which is an ongoing comic strip that provides incisive and insightful commentary on topical, political, or politically adjacent current events. Some of my recent favorites are, quote, fiction or qualified immunity, which is a darkly funny guessing game illustrating the ridiculous and often destructive nature of the controversial legal precedent, to, quote, how city budgets work, 
which examines the ways metros mismanage their public funds, to older strips like, quote, Oh, How They Suffer, which is a pointed critique of some of Joe Rogan and Glenn Greenwald's more hyperbolic statements, I guess you could say. And, quote, The Existence of Trains Debate, which is an allegory for the threat of global warming that the producers of Don't Look Up should at least consider giving you some royalties for. (laughs) Now, (laughs) as mentioned at the start of the show, these comics are published in every issue of Dollars and Cents magazine, which I believe publishes six times a year. But glancing through the website of yours, uh, leftycartoons.com, it appears that you produce far more than that. So how many of these would you say you produce on an average year? The goal is to produce 52 political cartoons a year. At least in recent years, that's been the goal. And some years I manage that, some years I really don't. So if I do all 52, then I guess that means about one out of eight uh, will be printed in dollars and cents. And the ones that are dollars and cents, because dollars and cents is an economics magazine, all need to be focused on the economy or economics in some sense, whereas the other ones I can just do whatever I want. So the qualified immunity cartoon, for instance, I would not have done for dollars and cents. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) I'll be here till Thursday. Remember to tip your server. So I guess my next question is, and this is something I've been fascinated with ever since reading the 10th anniversary edition of Calvin and Hobbes by Bill Watterson, is one, how little time cartoonists have if they're publishing on a weekly basis to go from the idea to actually drawing it out and revising the script and what the character is going to say to publishing it. So what is your process like when you go from, okay, I have an idea, you know, I was watching the news or whatever it is that inspires an idea. What is that process like from going from the idea all the way to the finished cartoon that we'll see on the website or in Dollars and Cents magazine? Well, it's a much longer process than Bill Watterson's, at least sometimes it is. I have a folder on my computer called Unfinished, and it's basically where I stick in scripts for cartoons that maybe I'll draw someday, or maybe Becky or Kevin will draw someday. And I should explain, Becky Hawkins is my most frequent collaborator on these political cartoons. She draws a cartoon a month that I write. And then another frequent collaborator is Kevin Moore, although he is not as regularly scheduled as Becky. And, you know, the other ones are all drawn by me. So in the unfinished folder, I have a document that's nothing but things that I feel could inspire a cartoon, but I don't actually have an idea. So I just, you know, have the screen cap things on the internet that I think could be an inspiration and put them all in that document, which, you know, has dozens and dozens of layers now. And so sometimes when I'm looking for ideas, I'll go back and look through the seeds folder. And then I have dozens of cartoons that I've written the scripts for, but they aren't drawn yet. And some of them aren't drawn yet because I just haven't gone around to it. And some of them aren't drawn yet because I don't think they're ready to be drawn. I don't feel that this script works or is good enough yet. But I do feel that the script could someday be good enough. So I just leave it in there. And every once in a while, I'll look through the old scripts and I'll see things I can edit to improve them. And sometimes I'll improve them to the point that I 
actually want to draw them. And sometimes it's just, okay, that's a little better, but it still needs some marinating. So I'll just leave it here for a few years more. There's been a couple of cases where I've finally figured out a cartoon and drawn it over 10 years since writing the original script. Wow. What would be an example of something that was marinating in the background for 10 years? Do you have a specific example in mind? I find that really fascinating. Okay. Well, to give you a couple of examples, there's one I finished in probably September of 2018 called What Racism Isn't About. And this one just features a white guy and a black guy talking. And the white guy is talking about what he thinks about racism. For instance, when you say I benefited from racism, it hurts my feelings. Then the black guy responds something like, racism isn't about your feelings. So I wrote the script for this many years ago, you know, over a decade before I finally drew it. I liked the idea, but I just didn't see how to make it work. It just seemed a little bit bland and like it was missing something when it was just two people walking side by side for all four panels. And then about a decade or more than a decade after I wrote it, I was going through my unfinished cartoon folder and I just kind of thought, well, what if the black guy is carrying this huge burden and the white guy is apparently not even noticing it. Then I changed the layout so that we started in a close shot of the white guy and zoomed out over the course of four panels until finally in the fourth panel, we can see this enormous burden the black character is struggling under that the white character is completely oblivious to. And that for me was the extra thing that made that cartoon work. That was like a moment of inspiration lets me know how it works. Now, another way this might work is a cartoon called White Lies, a sequel, which I also finally drew in 2018 after more than a decade of writing it. And in this case, each panel is its own individual gag. Each panel is a white character talking usually to the viewer and saying things like, I definitely have a non-white friend who agrees with me, or I can't be a racist because I voted for Obama. And in that case, I just, you know, left it in the folder of unfinished cartoons. And every once in a while, I'd go and write another panel for it. I wanted to have 10 panels total. And I probably wrote about 20 panels for it. But Eventually, I just had written 10 panels I liked enough, so I felt like I should draw it. It's a nice thing about working for myself. I could take my time like that. That's great. And the two examples you provide, I think, provide insight into the different ways a comic strip can be constructed, right? Because as you said, the White Lies, a sequel cartoon was really a series of individual standalone gags, so to speak. So you could just keep adding to that list over time. Whereas the first one you talked about, which was what racism isn't about, really hinged on having that payoff for the visual gag, which ultimately resulted in that slow pullout with the black man holding the gigantic boulder on his back, which is great. So I guess that leads to my question about what the differences are when constructing a strip like this for lefty cartoons versus something like Hereville, 
when it comes to the constraints of the respective formats, right? Because with Hereville, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in our conversation about layout and how you can have different panels bleed into one another or disappear entirely. You can have an entire image take over the whole page or recede into the background. You can play with transparencies and all different sorts of things versus this format, which is much more formal. The lines between each panel are much more firmly drawn and set. And the structure of how you construct the narrative kind of has to hew to that format. How does that force you to think differently about how you're constructing those narratives? And especially within the limited, I guess you could say, time frame of how many panels you have to kind of execute, whether it be a joke or a commentary in a format like the one you use with Lefty Cartoons versus the freer environment, I guess you could say, of something like Hereville. I think when I was talking about Hereville layouts, I brought up the idea of transparent layouts versus more opaque layouts. The idea being that transparent layout, the reader doesn't even notice, whereas a more opaque one is a page that's sort of asking the reader to take note of the way the layout is interacting with the storytelling. I do a bunch of opaque pages in every Hereville graphic novel, also in Superbunch. And I really enjoy that form of storytelling. I enjoy it as a reader and as a creator. But in a political cartoon, I've found when I look back on the ones where I was experimenting with layout years later, they're often not the ones I like. A political cartoon, the storytelling needs to be as transparent as possible because typically in four panels, I'm getting across just one single idea. Mm. And anything that detracts from the clarity of that idea is usually detracting from the cartoon. Now, I don't want to be super strict about that. I don't want every single cartoon to look like Dilbert. (laughs) But I do want, you know, I want to have a little room for me to be playful or to work on drawings in the way I enjoy. But basically, I stick to usually just four panels in a grid because I feel that getting weirder detracts from the gag. There are some exceptions. I recently did a cartoon called Oil and Gas Are So Cheap, which is the same four-panel grid, but actually the first three of the four panels form a single continuous image that's just divided into panels, which is a technique I like a lot and I use frequently in things like Hereville and Superbutch, but I very rarely use in the political cartoons. And I don't know that anyone even noticed I did it in Oil and Gas are so cheap. I think that the reader, these cartoons are far less likely to be reread for the most part. And readers, you know, pay less attention to things like that. And you also have the benefit of being able to break the fourth wall, like you did with the existence of trains debate. You kind of employ a metaphor of an approaching train to represent the threat of global warming. And then at the very bottom, you have someone pop in and say, what if readers don't understand that this is an allegory for global warming denial? And you, as a, an avatar of yourself, say, I'll find some subtle way to let them know. And I think it's pretty cool that you, as the author, can actually literally break the fourth wall, so to speak, and pop in and provide additional details in case you feel like the allegory might not get across to every single reader. Oh, absolutely. Although, to be fair, in terms of breaking the fourth wall, those other comics do it too. I mean, first of all, in many of my cartoons, the characters in the cartoons and the political cartoons are speaking directly to the reader. 
you know, as if they're in a documentary. Right. So that's breaking the fourth wall a little. And Hereville has plenty of that. There'll be like these panels where the narrator, me, is speaking directly to the readers and explaining something about the world that I think they wouldn't necessarily understand otherwise. I really enjoyed that as a through line across your work. And I think that breaking that wall between the viewer and the artist can really form a kind of intimacy between the two, because you really feel like the author, the artist is talking directly to you. So you've mentioned that some of your strips are collaborations with fellow cartoonists like Kevin Moore or Becky Hawkins, who's your longtime collaborator on Super Butch as well. How does this affect the overall process of making a strip? And what do you enjoy most about combining respective talents in this way? I mean, there's the enormous change in that I'm not drawing it. So the process becomes a little bit more collaborative. And in the case of Lefty Cartoons, I am the boss in a way, and I am paying Becky and Kevin for their work. So I feel a little bit freer to interfere with their work. After they do the rough layouts, they'll send it to me. And it's not even a matter of wrong or right or better or worse. I will request changes to their layouts that make it feel more like one of my cartoons. Whereas on Super Butch, we have that same process, but it's a little bit more of a back and forth. And although I haven't asked her, I think Becky feels like she has more freedom to say, nah, you're wrong. I'm not going to do that. Having said that, the most enjoyable thing to me about the collaborative political cartoons is when they do things that I love that weren't in my script and I wasn't expecting at all. For instance, there's one called Real America versus the Coastal Elites, which I wrote and Becky drew. That's a great one. Oh, thank you. My script for that was just talking head guy, talking to the reader for four panels. And that was it. So I was very surprised when I Becky was looking through the unfinished cartoons I had. And she picked that one to draw and said, I'm really excited to draw it. And I was thinking, why? And then Becky did such fabulous things with the background, where the background in each panel changed according to what the character was saying. And then the third panel, it turned into this amazing collage of horrible things that right-wingers imagine are going on in urban places. And I just couldn't believe it when I saw it. That one remains one of my favorite cartoons. And a lot of it is I just get so much joy out of seeing the things that Becky made up that I didn't and wouldn't have thought of. I love the commentary you provide sometimes on the differences between how you work and your own drawing sensibilities and Becky's. There was one where I believe she drew, I mean, to me, as someone who does not draw, <laughs> the, the skill and time required to do something like what I'm about to talk about kind of just goes right over my head. So it was really fun to see you call it out. Are we about to talk about we mustn't ruin his life? Yeah, I think so. It was the panel of the girl riding the bicycle and all the houses in the background. Yes. Yeah. And you, you called out how long something like that takes. And then I think she responded by talking about how, you know, she goes about looking at Google Maps and then finding photos of houses and using that as inspiration. And basically, the two of you communicated to me, the reader who would, I think, take for granted the skill and time required to do something like that. It was really insightful for me to learn like just how long that takes and how difficult doing something like that is. But it's not difficult for Becky, <laughs> was part of the point of that. Becky 
you look at her sketchbook, she just is drawing the houses and buildings all the time. She'll see an old building that's kind of cruddy and rotting in the way she likes and she'll just stop and put on a sketchbook and draw it if it's not raining. So that's so much part of her vocabulary. And so it is a cartoon, We Mustn't Ruin His Life, we're talking about. And there's one panel in which she drew, it looks to me like there are seven houses visible in the background, as well as three cars. And houses and cars are two of the things I most hate drawing. And the ironic thing is that after I wrote my intro to that cartoon, talking about how mind-blowing I found it that she did that, in her response, she commented that the only really difficult thing for her drawing that cartoon was the fourth palette, which has no background, but it's a close-up of a hand holding a smartphone. And why I find that funny is I love drawing hands holding smartphones. They're like in so many of my cartoons lately. And I find drawing a hand in close-up kind of fun and not very difficult. And that was a thing that really tortured poor Becky when she had to draw this cartoon. Yeah, that's such a fascinating part about the creative collaborative process. And I think it can apply to really any artistic field. I always love that aspect of creation and talking with artists about how they bring out strengths within each other and It's just great hearing about how, for you, it's difficult to do one thing, and for Becky, it's difficult to do something else, and how when you collaborate, and let's say she's illustrating something you've written for Lefty Cartoons, the panels are going to look entirely different because of where her strengths lie. And because of where her strengths lie, she's going to be thinking of ideas for those panels that you may not have ever even thought of because you're trying to avoid what you perceive are your weaknesses and play to your strengths. And I find that such a fascinating part of the creative process. That's been something I've had to learn in Superbutch. I've developed this reflex over the years of not doing panels, which require me to do heavy architectural work. Sometimes I do them, like in the first year of a book, there's the first big splash page of the Witch's Tower. And I knew that had to be spectacular. So I put a lot of time and work into that splash page. But generally speaking, I try to avoid that. And I've had to learn to quash that instinct and go the opposite direction with Superbutch to purposely write in scenes where we will get to see like some big architectural shot. Because not only are they cool to look at as a reader, but some of the pages that Becky will have the most fun drawing. And so, yeah, the collaboration and who you're collaborating with definitely changes how the final product comes out. And if it's a long-term collaboration, it changes how I'm writing for it. In the case of Kevin Moore, he has this fabulous underground slash mad magazine aspect to the way he draws. And so when I do scripts that I know are going to be drawn by him, I try and lean into that. Or if I have a script that maybe I didn't write thinking of Kevin, but looking at it now, it involves a lot of gross things and vomit. I'm going to think, oh, I'll ask Kevin if he wants to draw this one because he's great at that. That's really great. It's such a wonderful aspect of collaboration. So before we get to our final question, I want to briefly read a testimonial from someone who has a pretty strong opinion of you, Barry. Quote, have you ever had someone come to your school to tell you about their book and then bore you to death? Well, that will not happen if Barry Deutsch comes to your school. He will show you how to draw cartoon characters and will tell you about how he wrote his story in a fun and inspiring way. 
end quote. And that, that opinion comes from Sarah, who was in fifth grade at the time. And this is, of course, a quote from an elementary student who experienced one of your Hereville school presentations, which you give to children grades three through eight, which includes a live drawing session and a reading from one of the Hereville books featuring students reading the parts of different characters while the illustrations are projected onto a screen. Now, I imagine some of that has changed since COVID and various lockdowns, but inspiring creativity in children is something that is quite near and dear to my heart. So what inspired you to start giving those presentations and what are some of your favorite memories from doing them? Well, my sister is a school teacher in Ithaca, New York, and she teaches mostly the third grade. And so after the first or second Hearville came out, I'm not sure which, she asked me if I could come talk to her school. And I said, oh, sure, that sounds like fun. And I put together a slideshow and I had no idea what I was doing. And my sister, Allison, also didn't really know what she was doing. So she scheduled me instead of doing like a big auditorium reading, she scheduled me to speak individually to every classroom in the entire school building. So it was like this four day odyssey where I was speaking to five classrooms a day or something like that. But it was like boot camp for giving school presentations, you know, doing the same thing over and over and realizing that okay, that didn't work great. The students look bored during that bit. What can I change? What can I cut out? For years before that, I had been entertaining my niece and nephew, my sister's children. By when I visited, I would do these wacky face drawings and I would let them tell me what to draw, sort of. Like I would ask them leading questions. Should the nose be big or small or pointy around? And whatever they told me, I would do a much exaggerated version of that because that is a cheap way to get laughs out of any child. (laughs) And my sister suggested I start incorporating that into what I was doing. And so I did. The children would scream literally to the point where after I've been doing it for a year or two, I started warning the teachers ahead of time that there are going to be points where the kids are really loud and that they shouldn't think that this disturbs me. After that, I occasionally started doing other schools that were not my sister's school, and I learned that the way my sister worked me to death that week is not the norm. (laughs) (laughs) And the presentation evolved over the years. I eventually learned that the reading was a bit more fun if I had the students read parts. And then I eventually realized that if I picked a scene with a lot of sound effects, and I had all the students who weren't readers If I assigned the entire room the job of reading the sound effects, not only would it be more fun for them, the kids would be paying much more attention because even if they're not very much into reading, they are very much into watching to see when the next sound effect comes up so that they can make fake barfing noises or whatever. (laughs) So that was really fun in terms of learning a new skill and getting better at it. And of course, if you could be a speaker at schools and if you can not bore the children, they will adore you. And there's way worse things in life than being adored by a room of 200 children. And one thing which I didn't expect at first, but which I began hearing from teachers almost after every single appearance is that For 
days or weeks after seeing me, you know, I do a drawing demonstration of how I draw Mirka. And, you know, I do the basic thing of showing the underdrawing, like a circle with a cross through it, indicating where the eyes, nose, and mouth will go. And for weeks afterwards, kids will try to incorporate those same techniques into their own drawings. And I thought that was great. So I can't say I have anything of great depth to say about this other than, you know, cracking up a room full of children so that they're screaming and crying with laughter and you feel like George Carlin. That is wonderful. (laughs) That is one of the most fun things about my job, or it was before COVID. But I'm hoping to be able to do it again someday if we ever get to return to normality. Well, I think you did say something of pretty good depth there, Barry. It makes me recall a memory that I had from working with an organization called the Young Storytellers Foundation here in Los Angeles. And they have sessions for elementary, middle, and high school students, although I exclusively volunteered with elementary school students since I found their temperaments most suitable for me and my incredibly corny sense of humor. (laughs) But there's one memory that I had how the process worked back then, I think it's still pretty much the same, although perhaps with some slight modifications, it's been several years. But over the course of eight weeks, there would be 10 adult mentors assigned to 10 fifth graders and one head mentor, which was the role that I was filling. Over the course of these eight weeks, we would guide these 10 children pulled from various classrooms in a given elementary school. We'd show them how to write five-page screenplays. Now, some of that was about format, you know, like, here's what a slug line looks like. This is how you describe a character in a screenplay format. But most of it was enabling and empowering these children to create whatever story they wanted to outside of the boundaries of a homework assignment. And what I kept noticing over and over again is that for many of these kids, 11, 12 years old, this would be their first time really getting to write a story purely for fun in which the adults are in the room not to judge them or tell them what they're doing wrong, but only there to guide them and make their story as best as it can possibly be through encouragement. And there's this one story I have. (laughs) I'm going to try and keep my composure here. There was this girl that I worked with in one of these eight-week sessions. Her name was Michelle, and she was very quiet. Because one of our mentors had to leave within the first week, even though I was the head mentor, I took on the assignment of her mentor as well. So I would sit down next to her for an hour each week during our sessions. And I would, you know, help to empower her to write this five-page screenplay, which ended up being just a really fantastic story. Kids' imaginations are wonderful. But the thing that I remember most from my time with Michelle is how much she changed in just really eight hours of total time of us being with her. The first 10 to 15 minutes of every class was, you know, everyone playing games that were always related to whatever the theme of storytelling was that day. Then there would be about 30 to 35 minutes of one-on-one writing time, and then like five minutes of closing time, right? And what I noticed over the eight weeks and just an hour a week was how slowly but surely she came out of her shell. She went from not talking at all, not volunteering for any games trying to pry story details out of her, like, you know, what environment should this take place in? What should this character's name be? You know, what should they do next? It was like pulling teeth, you know, from like uncooperative patient. But by the time we got to the final session and we're going around and we're asking what each of their favorite memories are and if they have any feedback for us as mentors for, you know, what can we take to our next session, right? Our next round of students. And Michelle raised her hand, something that she would always avoid doing in the first several weeks. 
And she said that her, her main comment was that she just wishes that it was longer and that the session would never end. Right. So what I found really, (laughs) I'm a soft when it comes to this sort of thing, but what I connected with in your story, Barry, is that I think that your answer does have a lot of depth because I think as you demonstrated just an hour with a child and exposing them to something that they were perhaps never exposed to before, like the art of drawing or drawing in a way that is really fun and interactive and relatable, that isn't about work, but about joy can have a really profound and long lasting impact on a kid that can last for weeks or months or years. And so anyway, I don't mean to make this all about me and my story, but I wanted to draw a connection there because to me, I think the work that you did there and are doing with children is is really important because it only takes a small moment like that from an adult who cares and talks to them in a different way about what they're passionate about can have a life-changing impact on a kid. Actually, I do very often talk about doing cartooning as work, as a job, when I talk to kids, because one of the things I want to do, and keep in mind, I'm often talking to older kids than you talk to. I don't do this when I'm talking to kindergartners, which I sometimes do. You know, with kindergartners, it's all about, okay, what's going to make them laugh and be a fun experience to watch someone who's good at drawing draw, and then I'll be out in 15 minutes. <laughs> Whereas with older kids, I like talking a bit about cartooning and the arts as a career path. And I talk about how much practice is required and how even with a lot of practice and skill, to make a career of this is going to require luck. And that's important. And I also talk about, especially the Q&A with the older kids, someone almost invariably will ask me how much money I make. And I can honestly say I don't make very much money. And that can be a lead-in for me to talk a bit about the economics of being a working artist and talking about things like when you decide where you want to live, what kind of home you want to have around you, part of what you're deciding is what kind of job you can afford to have. If it's very important to you that you have a really nice house with multiple floors and no housemates required, then that's going to mean that you have to be concerned about how are you going to earn money. If you're someone who can be content living until basically their entire life in smaller places or in places where you have housemates, then that means you can afford, in a way, much lower paying careers. And I like being able to say things like that with the older kids, because I'm hoping for some of the kids who do want to be artists of whatever sort, it gives them a picture of this as something that can actually be achieved and done and is a realistic option for their life. So I actually enjoy talking about the doing it for work thing. Although, of course, with the younger kids, I just want them drawing for joy. I actually don't even like giving them critiques of their work. When they show me the cartoons they've done, I'm usually like, oh, that's great. And I try and pick out one thing in the cartoon that I think is cool and point that out. But I don't want to be telling the little kid, oh, you should be using a heavier line here, or you really need to put more work into this figure or whatever, because, you know, that's for when they're older. At this point, they should just be drawing so that doing the drawings is fun for them. 
I totally agree. At a certain age, when they're that young, I think the most important thing is positive encouragement. Because when a child is trying to formulate who they are creatively and, and where they might want to go with their career or with their creative hobbies, in those initial stages, which is a lot of the work that we did with young storytellers, the most important thing is allowing them to see where their creativity goes and save the more critical feedback for a later date. But on the topic of cartooning and comic work and artistry as a full-time career, I think that takes us really well into the final question for this episode. In 2000, you won the prestigious Charles Schultz Award for Best College Cartoonist. And while I was preparing for our conversation, I learned that the award has since been discontinued about a decade ago due to a, quote, lack of entries. So what does the future of your field look like? How do you see it changing in good ways or bad? And in a world of more and more entertainment competing for less and less attention, Barry, where do we go next? I am, in one sense, very optimistic about the future of comics. When I first became very interested in comics beyond the Marvel and DC superheroes, I felt I was actually able to read every interesting comic book that was coming out in English. I read Cerebus, I read ElfQuest, Better Marvel and DCs, I read Ronin, I read Watchmen. And that was a very weird thing. At the time, it didn't seem that weird to me that I would be possible to read all the English language comics that were interesting and available in the United States. But it's so impossible to do that now. Not only do I no longer feel like I'm reading all the good and interesting comics available in English, I'm positive that I haven't even heard of most of the interesting comics done in English because there are so many more now. And a lot of that is because of the internet. The internet has disrupted some forms of cartooning a lot, especially political cartooning, because with the forthcoming death of the newspaper, as newspapers have shrunk, there are fewer and fewer staff editorial cartoonist positions. That whole way that political cartoonists for generations made their livings is more or less gone now. There's still a few people it, but you know, when they retire, it'll be gone. But on the other hand, the barriers to entry, the barriers between a cartoonist and the audience have gone way down because you can publish your comics yourself on the web. Now, just doing that is no guarantee of finding an audience, let alone making a living. In any artistic field, that is always going to be difficult. But it's gotten so much easier to at least get that first step, getting your work somewhere where an audience has a chance to understand it. That first step has become trivial, almost. That's a wonderful thing. There are so many great comics coming out. Additionally, we're seeing a steady stream of amazing European comics translated in English and a much bigger pool, uh, manga available in English. And that's an enormous amount of comics to read. And manga being available in English for the last couple of decades, it's basically led to having a bunch more female cartoonists. Because when I was a kid, comic book publishers weren't making comics for girls. And if you ask them, they would usually say, well, you know, comics are visual. Girls aren't into that. Girls don't like this stuff. And then, you know, when manga 
which has a huge variety of comics expressly written and drawn for girls, started being available in English. Part of the reason it exploded here is because there was that huge market of girls who would like comics and just weren't liking the comics that American publishers were putting out. So now we have so many girls, unlike when I was getting into it, there are so many girls who grew up reading comics And they didn't have to be the exceptional, unusual girl who was super into Batman, even though it was aimed at boys. There's now a lot more variety available that is trying to appeal to girls. So that's changed comics for the better. Classic American comic strips, comic strips from before either of us were alive, are being reprinted now more than ever. And that's another huge field of great comics that's become available to us. And web comics, of course. Like I said, anyone can get published. That means that there's so much room for innovation there. So in that sense, I am really happy about the future of comics. I don't think comics in the United States has ever been better than it is right now. Now, on the downside, I don't know that the future of Marvel DC-style comics is necessarily that bright. I don't know if they're going to be able to compete with movies and video games. But I think there's still a large audience of people who love that. I love some superhero comics. And even if it does become a less mainstream medium or genre, it's still going to be there. So it's always going to be hard for cartoonists to find their niche, which lets them make a living. That's probably never going to change unless we get to a socialist utopia of some sort. But the comics available for us as readers are amazing. And I don't see that ending anytime soon. As we part ways, I want to touch on something you said in your ending there. Speaking on the audiences that are left behind by poorly informed assumptions, you know, whether it was for too long comic books not being geared towards the interests and tastes of so many girls in America and beyond, and the things that we see that are slowly changing in other fields of entertainment, like movies, music, television, and so on. And that's one of the reasons that I really appreciate the work that you do, either in Hereville, Super Butch, and elsewhere, which I think is really important. And I really love that you have an eye and a heart for representing people who oftentimes historically and even today are often underrepresented. I really enjoyed researching your body of work, which, as I said, is much larger than what we talked about in this episode. And I really appreciate the time you took to talk with me today. And I want to add one thing that is totally inconsequential to the audience listening right now, but something that is important to me. I quit Twitter at the end of 2021 because it was deleterious to my mental and emotional health. But one thing that I want to point out is that regardless of how toxic and awful a lot of that experience was, you were always really kind and really generous with your time. And I think that that is a rarity on that health site. And so I just want to say publicly so that everyone knows it. I really appreciated our interactions, Barry. And so thank you for your time, your work, and for being just a really great guy. Thank you for having me on this. I have missed you on Twitter, but I think you made the right decision. Mental health comes first. (laughs) And I really enjoyed our conversation here and now. Thank you. Me too. Tune in April 12th for a conversation with tech entrepreneur and augmented reality expert, David Rose. Thank you for listening. And wherever we go next, I hope you'll be there too.